it's easy to go to the negative. So just assume, you know, positive intent and then, you know, remove fear. Welcome to Play in Conversations, the podcast where we delve into the world of design and explore the endless opportunities that await designers and brands. I'm Simon Martin, Head of Content Strategy at Play & Co, and joining me are Brendan Hutchison and Jason McGinnity, the Founder and Senior Designer of Play & Co. Together, we'll be your hosts as we embark on insightful design conversations that inspire and inform. Today, we have a remarkable guest for you all. Michael Bergman, also known as Bergy, is a dynamic force in the world of innovation and technology. Having spent over three decades building an impressive career at Nike and culminating as Global Director of Footwear Product Sustainability, you might say that Michael is a sports industry veteran. His career is marked by numerous breakthroughs in product innovation. In today's episode, Michael recounts one such fascinating story that led to the invention of a new and superior tread compound for Nike's tennis shoes, the likes worn by Rafael Nadal, Gail Monfils and the Williams sisters. His reputation as an innovator quickly led him to become a change agent of sorts, leading and nurturing cross-functional teams to apply his methodology across all aspects of the Nike business. This methodology formed the foundations for Incubator U, Michael's current venture, passion and pursuit. Incubator U is dedicated to impacting organizations of all sizes by helping them transform their teams and create exponential success through the system he devised at Nike. And I highly recommend buying a copy of his newly released book, Innovation from the Ground Up, available on Amazon. So whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur, a budding innovator, or simply someone eager to explore the world of groundbreaking ideas, you're in for a treat today as we delve into Michael Bergman's insights, experiences, and the wisdom he's gained from his remarkable journey. Michael, so great to have you. You've had a storied career starting from the early days of Nike. Uh, now you have um, your, your own uh, incubator, you. Uh, you have a new book out. Can you bring us back a little bit and and tell us a little bit more about who you are and you know where your career started and 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 what that led into what you're doing today? Yes. Um, so I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and um, always a lifelong runner. I I was never talented enough to do another sport. I was I had a hot temper. I couldn't. I couldn't play baseball. I, I was the most prolific fowler in basketball. So I had a lot of energy that had to, you know, get out of my system. Started running age group track. So kind of saw the evolution of the brands early on. My first uh, spikes were Adidas, like Tokyo's or something like that back in the 70s. I still have them. Um, got some of the first Nike spikes. Um, in, in the late seventies, um, when I was 16, as soon as I got my license, I showed up at the Nike had Nike office in near Washington square and basically asked if I could, if they needed shoes tested. And that was kind of the start of uh, like a long, long journey. Um, so I basically took all the shoes to my high school and then continued to test them through high school, into college, ran for a couple of years in college, realized I was not going to be an Olympian. So that's when I decided to pursue 
my academics went to Europe my junior year in college and then uh, finished up at USC. And in my last semester, ended up in China um, in one of the first language programs that ever happened for American universities in China in 1983. And I happened to be um, visiting, or actually I ran in, I looked up a couple people I knew um, that I knew were in China from Nike and actually visited a factory in 1983, right when they like literally started. And then in November of 83, I happened to, I was having beers with a friend of mine near University of Portland. And I looked across the bar and Phil Knight was sitting at this little bar called the Tea Room. And he had just, (laughs) he had just returned from China um, in October of 1983. And so I flipped on my stopwatch. I didn't want to be the blubbering drunk. So I walked over and introduced myself, told him I had visited one of his factories. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I've got about six resumes floating around your company. And he said, well, give this guy a call. So I called him. He didn't answer. Uh, I ended up giving uh and this is before computers you know so emails yeah so i sent him a letter saying i was having beers with phil knight the other night and he told me to give you a call (laughs) so immediately as soon as the mail got there he i got a phone call from a guy named david chang and he brought me in to interview and i basically started an apparel customer service and then i was Six, that was 84. So we basically worked on the LA Olympics. And then um, from that, they, I was an Eakin, which is a tech rep, promo rep for Nike. And our big competition at the time was the Reebok um, Princess, you know, that when the aerobic craze took off. And so we were trying to compete with that. Um, so I was in, you know, basically I was trying to get, it was a good job for a single guy, um, giving away aerobics shoes to aerobics instructors in the Midwest. So, um, and trying to convince them to wear our shoes. Um, and then they found out, they realized that I spoke Chinese. So I ended up going from being a tech rep to, um, being a production manager in Guangzhou, China in 1987. So I was in, China for three years, Indonesia for three, and then back to Beaverton for most, my career was mostly in product development. So, yeah, so that's, and on the, yeah, so on the personal side, married 36 years, four kids, two grandkids, three, a third one on the way. So, um, yeah, so life life, full life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. life is is pretty good. Yeah. Congratulations. So, so what did what, what what did the later part of the Nike career look like then, Michael? Because I know that you spent a lot of time doing Nike tennis. You were, you know, just full disclosure. I worked for Nike for a moment in time. I saw you on campus. You had a a big crowd of people around you. You were sort of a celebrity. Um, what what led what led to that? <laughs> well, I would say. Um... So, so my career was always, I always ended up in categories, as in product development, and I was always in categories that were 
in trouble or needed help. I was, I would look at myself as a fixer. And, um, you know, what, one of the early, uh, product development operate opportunities, I was in cross training and night cross training is a made up category. We literally made that up. And, um, and I still remember it was like in the early nineties. Oh, Jackson. Yeah. In Bo Jackson, Ken Griffey Jr., sport training, baseball training, football training, cross training, Peekaboo Street, Gabrielle Reese, all those things that, you know, I worked on. And and basically that was a rocket ride. I, I mean, it was, went from like $250 million to about $1.2 billion in three years. Wow. Wow. And, and, and I was the only developer. So, so, so there's a couple, I think I had a kid during that time. I'm not sure I remembered it. So, um, <laughs> I woke up a few years later and there was a kid there and he said, yeah. hey, Dad. It's like, hey, Bo. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, and then I, I went from that to, um, in the, my late thirties, I was the global director of development, product development. So I, pioneered a few things like the um, category rollouts where we bring in all the Asian factories and the, and it was like a sales meet, it kind of created the sales meeting for the, for the factories. So they could actually see what they were going to make and then get that insight from the designers on how they really wanted this, this product manufactured. So that was, kind of that was something that i i birthed as the global director of development we'd like to take a moment to remind you that play in conversations is brought to you by play and co if you want to explore more about design opportunities discover new insights or connect with play and co for a design project be sure to visit playandco.com was that did you bring them to to portland for yeah the, yeah so it wasn't like the design team flew to china no, so that's, no, we, that's it was, cool. It was like it went from line planning to category rollouts, and it was basically we set up in a sales meeting format where basically the the teams would come through, like the factory groups would come through, and each category would present. Here's here's the the vision for the season. Here's really what we want to get out mm-hmm. of it, and then and then it from there we moved into the category focus where I was the product creation director for cross training. And, and that was, you could actually from concept all the way through manufacturing, there was a complete alignment with manufacturing and everything. So that was, and it was just a way of creating a, a, a much more intentional, you know, manufacturing and design of the shoes. So, yeah. I can understand cool. that. I've I've not heard many companies doing that. I hear a lot of designers flying to China, you know, ad hoc and at different stages of the process. But I've never heard of a kind of like a curated manufacturer's event where you're bringing them to the to the to headquarters, right? To so the mothership, yeah. yeah. To yeah. to invite them in, and I think I can only imagine how much that would have excited them or. Yeah, helped with you know helped get people on board with the vision. So right. that's cool. It, it made them a part of the team. That, and that's that's yeah. one of the things I've always been a, a big proponent of is inclusivity. Is like, hey, if the, if the person is you know cementing the 
shoes on the line, they need to understand that those shoes might be worn by Roger Federer or, you know, yeah. they, you need to, and then here's a, you put a poster up in the factory of him wearing those shoes. So there's like this mm, continuous right, sure. connectivity all yeah. the way through. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So then, then the category focus and, and then I was, uh, ended up in custom footwear, special makeups, which is kind of the footlocker stuff. Um, and there was some inherent problems with that because we had Y2K and a lot of the systems were going down and, you know, and, and Foot Locker was, or the special makeups, uh, kind of the, the way, it, you know, I would say they were driving the sh ship a lot um, at that time. Can you maybe talk a little bit to that? Because when you said special makeups or or it to me my head went to early nike id but it was probably more like customized no, for footlocker right or yeah. specialist yeah. channels yeah yeah so Exclusives. you had you had a pegasus and you know yeah. the nike stores you'd have one colorway and then footlocker champs all those guys would want their own exclusive colorway and yeah and what the inherent problem with that and and, and i was I came into that situation and, and actually cr helped create a calendar because what was happening is they were cherry picking like the best colors at the end of the pipeline. And so basically it would give, and then we were spending $30 million a year at air freight just because we had guaranteed delivery of this stuff. It's like, that's stupid. So <laughs> why don't we here? <laughs> so why don't we have them, you know, give them a calendar as to, Hey, if you want a new swoosh color, here's the date you have to have it by. Here's the, you know, if it's a new upper, here's this. So we instill discipline in the calendar mm. into the process, which saved Nike millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, so that was special makeups. So that was, and then it was also lumped with this non-sexy category called custom footwear. And it was like the entry level products. So $50 products and those, you know, basically if you actually looked at the balance sheet, that was paying for everything else. Yeah. So oh, the, nice. famous, the famous, the yeah. famous of the worlds and mm -hmm. Um, so a design, a designer friend of mine and I, we created a, a, a series of shoes called, we called it the V series. It was, a, it was the new V series, but it was, there was a running cross training and walking shoe. And I have the patent with, uh, a designer friend of mine named Michael Hugh. Um, but we created modular tooling where basically we could, um, you know, the, the three, so you, instead of a, a mold having a left and a right, we had a left and a right. And then we took the, we basically were able to redesign the insert on the lateral side of the shoe. Oh. And, and, and so that cost oh. us 10, 10 cents a, a pair versus two dollars a pair to retool the whole thing so that series of shoes over a few seasons made like seven or eight million pairs and they were like fifty dollar shoes that looked technical mm. they were you know it was, it was a brilliant 
brilliant strategy, you know, yeah. with, with good margins. I love, that was, I love cool. stories like that because it yeah. really touches on, I think, something that's so unique in the in footwear. Um, my background is like product in transportation. And I'd say like in transportation, you get a special relationship with like a CAD surfacing modeler and you're like only as good as how you can communicate with them and their scalability and willingness to take it where you're trying to take it. And I would say like, I keep in touch with my design buddies from Adidas, but really the people I've maintained real relationships with are the developers because you never know where your life will take you. And a great developer is incredibly hard to find. And they're the most <laughs> valuable people, I think, in footwear. Um, that yeah. that relationship you just talked about of like creating a patent and, you know, changing the business model and the economics is, is just so cool. I love hearing stories like that. <laughs> and maybe if I can have a go at articulating it in describing it in words what you've just shown us with your hands uh, for the re for the listeners because so what michael i think you were saying is typically shoes would be molded in in a tool with the left on the left and the right on the right and what you guys did was actually put the right on the left and the left on the right mm -hmm. which meant that they could share an insert in the middle that would allow you to switch that insert out and change the laterals. Sorry, the laterals. The laterals. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. nobody looks be on the outside the of the shoe. Yeah. Nobody looks at the medial side of the shoe. Yeah. Right. And so, oh, that's amazing. And so Jason and I talk a lot about visual value too. So even at even low cost products, if you really understand the production process or you can innovate on the, on the production process, um, you can provide tremendous value to people who, can't really afford a $300 pair of sneakers, right? Uh, but they still want to buy into the brand. Um, and that's that's huge. I think that's something that you you guys at Nike did very well. And, and the, do. the later yeah. the later iterations do. of that, as we were able to save costs on the tooling, we put it into the upper. Yeah. So we right. had like molded upper components on a $50 shoe. And then the outsole, had three pods or two pods. One was a heel, which was the same on all three. The the cross training shoe had a uh, waffle on the medial forefoot and a herringbone on the lateral forefoot. And the running had a uh, waffle and waffle. Cool. So so they and then there's exposed midsole, so it looked like right. it's like wow, this is a technical shoe for fifty bucks. Yeah, <laughs> and they. That is genius. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael, was that the was that the Presto or like what what was the first one that came out that was that followed that? I have to remember. Then it was it started with a V. I I can't remember. It's just. It's just I, I, I put it in the show notes. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember when that came out. Yeah, because um, I, I bought a pair. <laughs> yeah, they're like, like thirty okay. nine nine thirty nine nine at you know, famous wow. footwear. Do you have one like pinnacle moment of working uh, at Nike that like really stands out to you as like, just, like that, that one good moment that you will always sort of in the back of your head, just go back to celebrate. Mm. Uh, you can't use the uh, introducing yourself to Phil Knight over beers one. That one's already out. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Um, I would say there were just a lot, and and I would say um, there there were a, a lot of them. And then I'd say in the 
um, kind of the time in tennis was great. Um, it was, mm. it was obviously, um, you know, we were, we had tennis, we had the best tennis players in the world, but the worst shoes and, um, you know, basically came in, came into a, um, you know, a, kind of a crisis situation where like our, our shoes that were at the Australian open literally were delaminating. So as they were taking them out of the box because we were, <clears throat> but that's not a highlight, but, the, but it basically gave me the opportunity to throw down the hammer and say, here's how we're going to do it going forward. And I can guarantee that it's going to be better. And, and mm -hmm. so that was a seven year run. Um, you know, another thing I was just talking to my daughter, who's a little bit in the industry right now. And, and, and I'd say, a, kind of a proud moment. It's, it's probably a, so in 2009, when Nike went through these huge layoffs, right. <clears throat> and actually most people went through some major layoff and Nike felt that it was, it was a, good idea to go direct to the factories for development and and just eliminate you know the shoe dogs and the people that had basically built the company from ground up and and I was fortunate enough to make it through that set of layoffs but then all of a sudden realized that most people didn't know what they were doing um, mm. and and so Nike you know, hire, you know, they went with younger developers that, you know, didn't have a lot of experience. And then the, then the factories were actually hiring people that spoke English versus knowing shoes. And so all of a sudden the, the, the developers at Nike thought the factory people knew what they were talking about. And then the factory people thought the Nike people knew what they're talking about. And so I took on this thing called this global development evolution i basically did this um uh, you know knowledge silo assessment where basically there's thir 11 different silos of knowledge you need to be a good developer and 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 then assessed 180 developers worldwide um and basically pulled everybody together the the management team of the um, groups together and basically did this assessment and recognized the fact that, you know, 80% of the people, the developers of these 180 developers worldwide didn't have basic knowledge of how things stuck together in chemistry. And so, so basically that was kind of an early parlay into incubator. You was like, Hey, I want to be the, professor of shoe university and teach these people you know here's some fundamental things you need and and you know someone else took it and ran with it which is fine but but they created the training program based off of that assessment that i kind of took on by myself um yeah so i think there is not one individual thing that um stands out but it was really i would say going into situations that were not working, helping identify people that just wanted to be asked to help and not, not the most obvious ones. And, and then you basically 
help them kind of build, you know, build towards a bigger vision. So in tennis, our mantra, the mantra that I set was performance product for the athletes. Simple. It's like, okay. So is this, everybody's working towards that in every yeah. moment when they're getting yeah. into the details and they still know where to point it. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like, um, it sounds like what you, what you're trying to wrap a bow on is not necessarily one point, but this idea of problem solving change agent. And so when you talked about um, what what that's all culminating towards, you talking about looking at that 180 developers, to me, reviewing 180 developers, you would have had, a, I guess, a team to help you with that, right? And so um, it's interesting for, for me having worked in corporate and for Jason having worked in corporate and probably Simon as well, quite often when you're an underling, when you weigh down the food chain, you you look at these things as too big and they're never going to change. They're too far above you as a creative to, to affect change. But it sounds like you were in a position to come in, take the bull by the horns, tell leadership what the issue was and then roll out a solution. So that's super exciting to hear. Um, is that the way it was? Am I painting that yeah. the right way? Yeah, cool. yeah. No, and it and it's and it's literally I mentioned being inclusive and you know yeah. every I think um if you you know you read through the book, there's you know, this one of the things that you know you need to eliminate in any organization, which is hard to do, is you know, fear. Fear stifles creativity. Yeah. And if people are not making decisions because of you know, whether it's going to affect them, you know, financially or their their evaluation or their performance evaluation, all those things hinder the best work that could come out. And then yeah. secondly, you know, diversity drives innovation. And there's, there's a, you know, basically sometimes the quietest room and the, the quietest voice in the room has the best ideas. And as a leader or a change agent, which I like that you use that, that I think you don't have to be a top end leader. You can, a change agent, someone that's connected, that's a communicator that can connect across all levels, but is also inclusive. I think that being able to identify people that, um, that can, you know, you just ask them to come and be part of something. And then all this, and, and you'll, see in the book on the whole yeah uh, the, the tennis example <laughs> based off of all of all of this experience that you've had with 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 nike and um you know this extremely storied career how did that evolve into incubator u and what is incubator u incubator u you know over the 30 years at nike and as i just mentioned the you know you're anytime you're leading a team you you help you basically want to it's no different than coaching right you want to basically you know pull the best potential out of each individual on the team and and what i started to see and it's funny you said that you saw me walking around and people were around me. i i was very connected at nike but there are a lot of young people that would come to me for advice and and i came to realize that a lot of their ideas they were afraid to bring them up to their managers and, you know, because it, if there might've been in footwear and then it was an apparel idea or a 
social impact idea. And they were not encouraged to go out outside their lane. And so what I, you know, my last role at Nike, I was the global director of sustainability. And I, and I kind of knew that my, my uh, pathway was, you know, kind of going thinner. So I was trying to create my own job. And so Incubator U came as a, initially an employee-led innovation center. And I approached uh, Gina Warren about the, I was working for Hannah Jones at the time and uh, actually getting kudos for some of the work I was doing out in the community. But then I started to realize that there, there were so many people that had so many great ideas that just never saw the light of day at Nike. And, and so I wanted to create an, an organization within Nike, an employee-led innovation center. And we had, I actually had a building off campus. So Nike has, there's a firehouse that's catty corner to the Nike campus. And it was, it was up for lease. And I was like, this is perfect. Let's create Incubator U. I'll be the professor. And the idea was to you know, people couldn't drive there. There were no park, there were no reserved parking spaces. They had to walk across the Hollister Trail to get there and basically bring your ideas. And then within Incubator U, I was, I wanted like five or six fire starters that could go basically into the organization, find out where the blocks were and then come back and then we'd provide these solutions. And so I got about 60% of, and it was like, perfect analogy too. It's like, oh, it's a five alarm fire. It's a, you know, <laughs> so, so I had all these things. And then, you know, Gina was moved to report to HR and she told me she was leaving. And I said, okay, time for me to move on. So I had come up with a concept within Nike, but then I took it one step further. And so the year after I retired, I worked with Franz Johansson at the Medici group out of New York. Um, the Medici effect, he wrote the book, mm -hmm. um, but I worked with him for about a year. And so the, uh, and so it really kind of evolved. I created my brand and then most probably four years ago, someone approached me that knew nothing about my background. And she said, wow, you, you get a lot of things done. It's like, you, you actually have a process. I'm like, oh, I do. So I basically put together the, the incubator you five-step methodology, which is actually is applicable in many, many things from community to product to organizations. And so that's kind of where, where I'm at right now. What, what is that five-step methodology? Michael? So the, the, the five steps are um, one is imagine. So like take off the blinders, just like, Hey, if you blue sky, it's like, Hey, I want to, I want to build a track in the middle of this desert overlooking the Deschutes River. You know, it's like there's nothing there. So, you know, imagine. So that is the first step. Identify is you get a group of people together, your network, your network, your network are all different than mine, but there's there's some connectivity there. And then but and I have people go through a personal, you saw my personal resource map that I drew out and put in the book. But basically, 
the core names don't change. It's like mm-hmm. you have five or five to 10 people that you call all the time, like for stuff, advice, updates, that, that doesn't change. Then the next level, and I have people do this by hand because I think there's something to be said about tactically writing things down uh, on a sh- piece of paper like doodling or whatever, but you're, you're basically, it's not a mind map that it's on a computer program. It's like you write it down. You basically circle it out and it makes you think through, oh man, I haven't talked to that person in three years and I'm working on this now. Maybe I should give them a call. So that's the third phase, initiate. And you basically make that step. If you have a gut feeling, the, hey, maybe I should call this person, then freaking call them. Don't wait. And then... Then the part of it is also your the initiate piece is you talk to that person or that contact and you're just like, hey, I really admire your career and the things you've been doing lately. Here's what I'm working on, but tell me how you got to this point. And and basically, if you ask someone about what got them them to where they are at, that basically engages them to spill more out they're gonna they're gonna want to talk to you they're gonna tell you everything and then the then you can say hey is there anyone else you know in your network that might be interested in this project i'm working on and so all of a sudden it kind of expands your network so that's imagine identify initiate implement and you're starting to execute you're basically don't overthink it act you know don't you know, a lot of times your first intuition is right. It's just move forward. It's okay if you're going to, but if it needs to, you know, vary a little bit, then um, you can always come back to it. And then the, the final one is integrate and that becomes operational. And I'll be honest, that's when I get bored. Yeah. Uh, and too. so, so the, op- <laughs> so, so the operate, the integrate is all of a sudden you're improving a process or a product. It's an inter- innovation is about iterations mm. and, and mm. incremental, incremental improvements to a design. And so basically this works really well with, with that because you have, you know, and then the, it's in a, the graphic is a circle because you can go back to any one of those other points in time. Mm. So it's super simple. Yeah. There's a lot of common sense. There's it's it's maximizing the potential of, you know, people in their networks and anybody can do it. Yeah. That's I can't wait to read this book because I feel like you just described the way I my brain works. Uh, very yeah. simply. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that is um, super cool. Yeah. And a couple of things I noticed too in the in the book when I read it. Um oh, losing my train of thought here but um i think one of the the points that you didn't raise there is there's always barriers so and there's always setbacks and people need to get comfortable with those barriers and setbacks and that's why it's a circle so you can go back to you know identify or other parts of the process and just kick it back off again yeah i i think there's something also to be said for it i think there's a different mindset to getting to integrate and and then taking the ball from integrate i think sometimes i think it's just different people different i i I don't know a lot of creators and innovators that like you know to integrate and to be operational right so once their jobs there is done it's kind of like 
my job here is done. Go forth and prosper. You know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there are there are people that love operations, and and so basically yeah. Yeah. give them you give them the playbook, and it's like, hey, you know, now you're saving six hours, you know, a month because we've just figured out that this, you know, you've just wasted all this time in this process, and yeah. this is going to not only help you, but it's going to be more cost effective, and it's going to you know, create a better product and less yeah. waste. Yeah. And I love the the story you had about the track in, is the, is the town name Mopin? Mopin. Mopin. Yeah. So that's that example that you used about the, the eight lane um, A-grade running track that overlooks the Deschutes River. I've never been there, but I've had a Deschutes beer. It's quite nice. <laughs> You'll have to have um, one out the track. <laughs> yeah, out at the track <laughs> overlooking the river. Yeah, yeah but I, some of the photos of that track look gorgeous. Um, it, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful spot. So I can imagine that's the other side of the book that I really liked is it's it's not yet, not just about that end goal that you set out to achieve. It's all of the side of side benefits that you're creating along the way. So you're building community. And you're building a sense of aspiration and opportunity and and people feel like they can get things done. And uh, at the end of the day, for that example, it wasn't just about the track, right? It was like about being able to provide um, events for the, the town for the whole year, for the whole calendar. Yeah. So um, yeah. inventing food truck kind of, uh, what was it? There was a food truck thing that you guys... We're talking um, about putting in a stage overlooking the the river. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So music events. Yeah, we have a yeah. couple of cycling events that are out there in the off season, um, and then the core thing the the track has become this centerpiece of the town, and it's pulled all those small the members together, and you know it's just you know it's and it's become a tourist attraction. People are like yeah, I'm like it's like the field of dreams. Michael, can you talk us through maybe that moment at the Australian Open in Melbourne where, you know, hang on, I'll start that again. Well, I would say the fundamental problem was our compound was not yeah. was not on par with anyone else. Yeah, so you hadn't so Nike had an inferior product. To the competition, I think Adidas was was kind of the benchmark. And can you maybe talk through how you approached creating the new product and what what innovation that led to? Yeah, so um, I ended up in tennis, and we Nike had the best players in the world. We we had Gael Monfils, James Blake, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Serena Williams, Lindsay Davenport. We had the best of the best. Our products did not match the quality of players that we had. I remember watching James Blake and Gael Monfils screaming across the court, dragging their feet and their shoes. The rubber on their shoes is basically, you smell it burning, but it they were burning through you know, multiple pairs of shoes of match. And so one of the, the biggest problem was how do we compete with the other brands that are superior in their performance? They might be heavier, but at the same time, they last longer. And 
so how do we bring the Nike, you know, vision into a, a highly durable tennis product? And, you know, I'm watching these shoes being destroyed. And um, so I go back to my team. And this is where the identify piece is on the methodology. I, I reach out to my chemical engineer on the team and say, hey, you went to the best school in the country. Nike only hires those. Do you have someone that works at Firestone or Goodyear? Like, oh, yeah. I said, do you mind finding out generically what they use in their compound? Because I'm watching these players and they remind me of Formula One race cars. And those tires cannot fail. And so we need to basically be at that same level. And so so that my imagine was our tennis players were Formula One race cars. The shoes were their tires. And I needed to figure out why theirs didn't fail and ours did. So my chemical engineer partner basically went out and found, you know, he gave me the generic formula. I looked at what we were doing and we were using a ton of this, you know, basically it was a filler. And I asked him why. And he said, well, it, the, the color on the outsole will be stable on the shelf longer. I'm like, well, I don't really care if, if the color lasts, if the shoe doesn't. So basically yeah. changed it up, you know, to, you know, make it a little bit closer. It couldn't have carbon in there cause it would mark the cords. Um, and then went to my mechanical engineer and it's like, hey, how do we create a you know, testing mechanism to um, basically replicate the toe drag? And so we came up with this idea and we created this machine called Teddy Toe Dragger. I love that. And it's and it was basically an arm with a shoe on it with a pneumatic plate with sandpaper that went around. So it's probably still in the lab at Nike. They probably don't know how to turn it on. But Teddy to, to Teddy, but we we tested Teddy the bab- dragon. We, we we tested the Babolat. We tested the barricade. We tested our shoes, and you know they were not good. And I mean theirs were good, ours weren't. So the cycles, and then you know my I'd go to the Australian Open every year uh, for five years, and one of the you know, I had a credential, and and so I would walk into the locker room. And ask the janitor, it's like, hey, you know, what did these, when the players are in the qualifying rounds in the first round of the tournament, you know, what, and they get punched out, they go to the next thing, what, what happens to their shoes? And they're like, well, we just throw them away. So I literally brought in three boxes into his, um, into the locker room and said, look, I can, if you want to just put them in here, I'll take your garbage out. And by the way, here's a Roger Fetter jacket and hat, you know, for just like your, your trouble. So I had three bought 60 pairs of shoes from every single brand destroyed from the Australian Australian Open courts, the rebound ace courts, which are hot and sticky and had them shipped back to my office in Beaverton. And and basically people were like, how did you get all these shoes? I'm like, well, I gave the guy a hat and a jacket and, and we were able to cut up every single pair of them. So then that informed, I gave that to our designers. Uh, 
mm. say, look, they're adding more rubber thickness around the toe. Why don't we just do that? Why not, not make them like running shoes. Let's make them yeah. like tennis shoes. So basically that was – so one, we changed the design. Two, we improved the formulation of the – it's called XDR rubber. And, and so – and basically we put rules in place where you couldn't use fluorescent colors on high wear zones. So – Pretty simple stuff, but it yeah. was again. It was using that same methodology to it's, create. I a think compound. Um, when you talk it out, and what I got out of the book when when you were walking through that case study, uh, there's a um, you haven't spelt it out, but there's a real user research component to this, which is huge in design, right? So, and user research doesn't have to be theoretical. And in actual fact, it's probably better that it's not. It's probably better that you're on the court anecdotally observing how athletes are moving and then talking to people on the ground and getting firsthand kind of evidence to your point earlier about usually your first assumptions are the right ones. And so if you can see that all unfolding before your eyes, that's massive. Um, and there's another I in this five steps, uh, inquisitiveness, I believe. Like I feel like you've got this inquisitiveness and this thirst to kind of understand <laughs> the domain, the context, um, and that helps to drive your ability to imagine, identify, initiate, um, implement, and integrate, right? So yeah. that's something that I think designers can take away from this, Simon. I, I know that... Um, in my over my career too some of the best innovations we've done is just trial and error you know mocking up a really crude mock-up testing it um you know a lot in headphones you know taking people out for a run wearing a new style making sure it sits on the ear it's ergonomic it's easy to use just running through 12 to a you know two or three dozen prototypes and just incrementally improving it along the way and um that's kind of the magic there. And I love the the um, the Formula One analogy because as soon as you put that in the book, I just thought of these giant, sticky, bouncy tires that just glue themselves to the road. Yeah. I'm gonna end this with a with a final question, Michael. You know, this 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 book is is a great book. And um, if, if there's one piece of advice you might have for uh, so, somebody, maybe a designer, maybe a product marketer, maybe, uh, you know, anybody, what, what would you say is like the fundamental takeaway from your book in terms of just getting to that next letter, sorry, next level um, as an, an, an innovator? You, you are driving innovation. So, so what, what is that? first step that somebody might be able to take if they're looking to level up in their innovative approach to whatever it is that they're doing? Well, I would say, you know, read the book, but at the same, but I would say there's, I have some tenets in there that to me are key components. And, and these aren't just related to the book or the methodology, but, you know, creating, you know, looking at a vision and, and basically, you know, remove any barriers that, you know, if you, if you think it's something is pot, if it's never been done, you think something's possible, then don't limit yourself. And then the second piece is assumed positive intent. So every single interaction you have, whether it's um, somebody that is, you know, you know, bringing something up, but just don't. It's easy to go to the negative. So just assume 
you know, positive intent and then, you know, remove fear. Like, don't worry about what other people think, what it's going to do. If, if you feel it's the right thing to do, fear, fear stifles creativity and it, it hip and it inhibits you. So I'd say those are three things that I would, you know, you know, take, you know, and you can take that into your everyday life. If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at PlanCo or visit PlanCo.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, keep playing, keep designing and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play in Conversations signing off.